From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, progressive news without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll be talking about the differences between Minnesota and Wisconsin in voting rights and some other things, too, with Ari Berman. And there was big news on the abortion rights front this week. The Supreme Court issued a sharp rebuke to Texas on Monday in the most sweeping victory for abortion rights in 25 years. Zoe Carpenter will explain what happened and what it means for women. First up, maybe you heard the other big news, the political earthquake of the year. It came last weekend when a majority of Brits voted in a referendum to leave the European Union. The leave vote had some striking and ominous parallels to the Donald Trump vote in the U.S., for comment, we turn to D.D. Guttenplan. He's editor-at-large of The Nation. He heads the magazine's London Bureau, and he's also been covering the U.S. presidential campaign. He's the award-winning author of the book American Radical, The Life and Times of I.F. Stone. He produced the acclaimed documentary film Edward Said, The Last Interview. And his latest book is about the magazine. It's called The Nation, A Biography. We reached him today in London. Don Guttenplan, welcome back. Thank you. Great so to be here. why did Leave win? What did the Leave voters think they could accomplish? Well, those are two separate questions. I, I think Leave won as a combination of a revolt against the elites because people were being preached at continually since the spring and being told all sorts of terrible things would happen if they voted Brexit, and they mustn't vote Brexit. They must vote to remain in the, in the European Union. Although it was never clear what positive reasons there were for voting in the European Union. Neither side made a positive case. And you have to realize that the Remain campaign was, was very much split between the Tory government, David Cameron and his chancellor, uh, George Osborne, who were basically advising people to remain on free trade and prudence grounds. And then the labor campaign, which was really not led by anybody. It was supposedly led by Alan Johnson, who was a labor member of Tony Blair's cabinet. And, of course, the labor leader, Jeremy Corbyn, endorsed Remain. But there wasn't really much of a labor campaign. So... Part of the reason that Brexit won is because uh, working-class voters voted, voted to leave in overwhelming numbers. And what did the Leave voters think they could accomplish with that vote? Well, they thought they could accomplish three things. Britain is a net contributor to the European Union. In other words, we pay more in to Brussels than we get back. And although the, the Leave campaign lied shamelessly about the amount of that net contribution, they promised that there would be 350 million pounds a week if Britain left the EU, and that that money could be spent on the National Health Service, which is basically promising people Christmas every week. They also said that Britain would be able to control its borders and end immigration. And ironically, if you look at the pattern of the vote, there was a big vote for Brexit in places that had almost no immigrants. The places that have lots of immigrants, like London and Manchester, the cities, voted overwhelmingly to remain. But nonetheless, a lot of people thought they were going to get control over immigration. And I suppose the third thing that people thought they'd get, and this 
they will get is uh, a degree of isolation or independence, depending on how you look at it, from Europe. The problem is that now that the vote has been counted, people have already been told they are not going to get 350 pounds a week for the National Health Service. That apparently, according to Nigel Farage, who was the head of the UK Independent Party, who sort of started this whole crusade, he said, oh, that was a mistake. And then yesterday, the Leave campaign admitted that it was very likely that they wouldn't be able to control immigration either. But nonetheless, there was a lot of talk about immigration, and there were these real furies unleashed of, of both xenophobia and outright racism. One of the last advertisements for Leave showed a swarm of people, mostly brown-skinned, coming ashore in Britain. And basically it said, you know, stop this. And if you, vote, if you want to stop this, vote Leave. So there, there was this sort of licensing of racism. Some, some commentator in the press put it very well. He said that things that were unspeakable a month ago have not only become speakable, they've become commonplace. Now here, this sounds very much like Donald Trump. There's the wall and there's the beaches and there's the uh, open racism. I'm sure you noticed this. Well, I think there's something even more ominous, actually. I mean, I, I said to people in America, because I was in New York, Chicago, and Tennessee last week, and I said to people there that if Britain votes for Brexit, it's very bad news for Hillary Clinton, uh, and very scary, because I think there is a kind of something going through the zeitgeist about xenophobia, and also, uh, and this may be less mystical-sounding, America has exactly the same kind of alienated working-class voters, particularly those who, who have been the losers in globalization's race to the bottom. In other words, the people who's, who used to have really good union jobs 20 years ago, and those jobs are now either offshore or they're being done by immigrants for a third what people used to be paid. I mean, I met people like that, for example, in Ottumwa, Iowa, uh, where the the packing house union is, you know, it's a multicultural triumph, but it's also still making less than they were making 20 years ago. And I think one of the most interesting analyses of, of the Brexit vote ran in The Guardian by John Harris, who has been reporting from a beat he calls anywhere but Westminster. And he said something that I think ought to keep Hillary Clinton's supporters awake at night, which is that what was behind the vote was was, he said, clear enough, a terrible shortage of homes, an impossibly precarious job market, a too often overlooked sense that men, and men are particularly relevant here, who would once have been certain in their identity as miners or steel workers, now feel demeaned and ignored. The attempts of mainstream politics to still their anger have probably only made it worse. Oily tributes to hardworking families or the trope of social mobility with its suggestion that the only thing Westminster can offer working-class people is a specious chance of not being working-class anymore. Well, if you replace the word Westminster with Washington, try and tell me that's an unfair description of what our own politicians, Democrats and Republicans alike, have been offering America's workers. So I think um, you know, it, it can definitely happen in the United States, and unless politicians start giving working people something to vote for instead of just things to vote against, it's going to happen. There's one other frightening similarity between the Brexit vote and the, the Trump situation. 
And that is the the pundits and the odds makers all said uh, leave would lose. The establishment was quite confident that that Remain was going to win. And today in the United States, the pundits and the pollsters all say Hillary is way ahead. That's right. That's right. If you listen to the sort of Hillary doesn't need Bernie's voters stuff that is now becoming conventional wisdom because Hillary's leading in the polls, uh, you see people setting themselves up for exactly the same kind of really ugly shock that we had here in London. I believe, however, that there are some key differences which I would like to raise with you. First of all, the American presidential election is not a referendum on an issue. It's a choice between two people, and it's become more and more personalized. If it is a referendum, it's a referendum on Trump, and Trump as a person is immensely unpopular, disliked by something like 70% of all Americans. That's a big difference. No, I think, I think there is a difference, and I think the situation is not as ominous. I mean, I wrote in The Nation before the vote happened that it was very finely balanced and could go either, either way. And I think, you know, the choice between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton is not finely balanced. That's an easy one. But on the other hand, there's a constituency who don't show up in the polls, and that's what I'm warning about. There's a constituency who don't show up in the polls, who are angry, alienated, and who feel absolutely with justification that they have nothing to lose. And if those people are mobilized and told, you know, that voting for Donald Trump is a chance to to sort of stick it to the establishment, you've got to be scared about what might happen. And one other big difference is those older white working class voters in the United States, we call them Reagan Democrats, they became Republicans a long time ago. That's why we call them Reagan Democrats. I guess I don't think that that happened to all of them. I think much more what happened, uh, and this is, this is the reason that I'm, I suppose, slightly less relaxed about this than you are, John, is if you look at turnout rates, people, what happened, in my view, is that those people started staying home. Yes. And have been staying home for a long time. I mean, you got people voting in the Brexit referendum who haven't voted in 30 years. I agree that the kind of default position of the white working class in America has been not to vote and, and that that could easily change this time. Uh, it's the people who think that voting won't change anything. If those people get convinced that voting for Donald Trump is the way to bring it all down, then I think it can be very scary. And there's an, one other big difference between the Brexit vote and the potential Trump vote the British referendum is not legally binding on the government, and if the Brits want to change their mind, they can have a new referendum. But if Trump is elected in November, he'll be president for four years. There'll be no do-over until 2020. That's right. Now, if Trump is elected, we're stuck with him. Uh, the British Parliament can ignore this referendum, although I think if they do it will get very ugly indeed. I mean, you know, this was a referendum that they offered people a choice and people said what they wanted. Now, there, there are ways back. Um, some of those ways back involve an effective opposition or an effective Labour Party, which at the moment we don't have. At the moment, what's really weird about Britain right now is that there's nobody at the wheel. David Cameron has said he's resigning, but he won't leave until the Tory party conference in October, at which point they will select a new leader. And meanwhile, Jeremy Corbyn has said he's not resigning, 
even though he lost a vote of confidence today by 172 votes to 40. So it's not clear that the Labour Party is going to be able to put forward a kind of wholehearted, if you want to stay in the European Union, vote for us campaign. The only thing that would, that would politically and democratically possibly reverse this is if there was a general election, which there probably is going to be. There's probably going to be a snap election in the next six months, because whoever the new Tory leader is is going to want to reaffirm his authority or her authority. That election offers the best chance of stopping Brexit, because if the new Tory leader is in favor of leaving, for example, if it's Boris Johnson, and the Labour leader is opposed to leaving, and Labour runs a stay in Europe, return to Europe campaign, and Labour wins, that has more political force and, and legal force, which the referendum doesn't have. But that's really the only way back, and it's a pretty narrow path at this point. D.D. Guttenplan, he wrote about Brexit and Trump for thenation.com. Thank you, Don. Thanks, John. This week we had big news on the abortion rights front. The Supreme Court issued a sharp rebuke to Texas in the most sweeping victory for abortion rights in 25 years. Zoe Carpenter has that story. She's the nation's associate Washington editor. She's worked previously for Rolling Stone. She's appeared on MSNBC, CNN, and other media outlets. We reached her today in our nation's capital. Zoe Carpenter, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. So remind us, what were the issues in this Texas abortion rights case? So the Supreme Court case concerned two provisions of a law known as uh, House Bill 2 or HB 2. And the first provision was that any abortion provider had to have admitting privileges at a hospital within 30 miles. And that's a, a formal arrangement with that hospital. And the second provision was that abortions, all abortions, even those that are just induced by pills, had to take place in a ambulatory surgical center, which is a very expensive facility that's outfitted for surgery, essentially. Texas state officials said this was in the interests of the health of the woman getting the abortion. The eight-member Supreme Court voted five to three that these two laws violated a woman's uh, right to abortion. What did the majority say in their opinion about that claim that this was in the interest of the health of, of the person seeking the abortion? Well, the majority essentially said that those two provisions offered almost no, I think the phrase they used was virtually no medical benefits. And certainly medical benefits were not sufficient to justify the burdens upon abortion access. And, and so this, this test, this balancing test between the medical benefits versus the burden on women's constitutional right to abortion um, is a standard that was set out in a previous Supreme Court case, Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And what, was, what this sort of decision hinged on, the big question was whether the court was going to take the Texas legislature's claims about the health benefits at face value, or whether they were going to sort of independently investigate the medical evidence behind the claims. And the, the court found that it had a constitutional duty to independently verify whether this law was in the interest of health and safety, and it found that these two provisions were not, while they did substantially increase the burden on women who were seeking ab abortions. The vote, as I said, was five to three seems to me it, it should have been unanimous. Texas was trying to prevent women from getting abortions, and 
didn't have a good medical rationale for the two laws at question. So they were violating the constitutional rights of these women. What did the minority, uh, the three justices say? How could they defend this, these laws? Well, the minority's dissent was very technical and procedural in nature. It wasn't phrased in ideological terms. Um, there was no, you know, no discussion of wanting to deny women access to abortion at all. There were disagreement on whether the clinic or the group of clinics that brought the case, Whole Women's Health, had standing to do so. The minority was saying, in effect, that they were fighting for the women's constitutional right when, as opposed to their own. So that's one example. These are very technical arguments. And in the end, Justice Kennedy, who was the, the swing vote in this case, sided with the majority. And that's what tipped the balance here. Hadn't Texas officials pretty much said straight up that what they wanted to do was prevent women from getting abortions with these laws? Right. I mean, that's the kind of crazy thing about this case is, on the one hand, you heard candid comments from the supporters of the law saying that their ultimate goal was to end legal abortion. But then they would say that this particular uh, series of provisions were just about health and safety, and it was about bringing up the, the standards at abortion clinics. And, and obviously, if you look at the evidence their, their claims to be upholding health and safety really don't hold up. There's, abortion is a very safe procedure, and there's no evidence in the record the justice has found to suggest that these provisions would have made things any safer. It's said that this is the most far-reaching abortion rights decision since that Casey case that you mentioned. Do, do you agree with that, and why, why exactly why is this such a big deal? Yeah, it really is very far-reaching. First of all, just because so many other states have tried to and or have enacted similar laws. 26 other states have either or both the admit admitting privileges law or the ambulatory surgical center provision. And so this ruling will likely make those laws unconstitutional as well. Although there are some differences, some of those other states have more flexible provisions. And so um, the legal battle battles over in, in other states could still be drawn out. But this idea that courts should independently verify claims about health and safety and, and actually consider medical and scientific evidence rather than just taking the claims of conservative state legislatures for granted that could have impacts on a whole range of other restrictions that are framed as health and safety measures. What exactly happens next? I know that more than half of the 40 abortion clinics in Texas had alre have already closed because they couldn't meet the requirements of these two laws. These aren't going to reopen tomorrow, I don't think. That's correct. And I think that's the, the sad part of this is that while although it is a resounding victory, the damage of the law has already been done. So immediately the um, handful of clinics that would have closed if the surgical center requirement went into effect will be able to stay open. And in theory, the providers who couldn't secure admitting privileges will be able to practice again. But the, you know, the 20 some clinics that closed already will have to get new licenses. And it's possible that the state could try to throw up more hurdles for them to get those licenses. Uh, they'll have to find and train new staff because they, you know, they had to let go of staff when they closed the clinic. They'll have to get all new equipment and new medicines and, and things like that. So it really will be a slow process. And there's no guarantee that uh, Texas will ever have the, the same number of clinics, which was already a shrunken number because several years ago they cut the family planning budget. So that, that 40, those 40 clinics was already a diminished number even before HB2 went into effect.
In the other states that passed similar legislation with these restrictions on abortion clinics, is there going to have to be constitutional challenges now in every one of those states? Well, it's going to vary state by state. So some of those, many of those laws are already in the middle of a legal process. So, you know, lawyers will go through a process of writing new briefs and making new arguments based on this new precedent that the Supreme Court has um, has set. In states where legal challenges either um, haven't been filed yet or had already been resolved, there might be new challenges that are brought based upon this, this new case. So I think depending on where each state is in the process, it'll take a different amount of time for the effect of the law to um, to play out. Now that the Supreme Court has acted, I don't think the Republicans are, are going to give up on this. Don't you think this will now become a much more important issue in the fall and the battle between Clinton and Trump? I think it was already going to be an important issue. Certainly, we're already seeing sort of belligerent statements um, from lawmakers in Texas and um, anti-choice activists elsewhere saying that they're going to, you know, they're going to press ahead with their with their campaign. I think the question about how it's going to affect the Hillary versus Trump race is an interesting one because Trump has been so all over the place on abortion. Yeah. And he hasn't actually responded yet to the Supreme Court case. And so that might actually sap a little bit of the power that the, um, you know, right to life community and the anti-choice community has um, if Trump isn't a consistent messenger for them. But certainly I think it's going to play out at the state level, um, not just in Texas, but in other states that have similar laws that are being fought over. Yeah, we remember the issue of defunding Planned Parenthood, which the Republicans in the House were so obsessed with. And Trump challenged them, saying Planned Parenthood has helped millions of women. He said that over and over again, millions of women. Even though he wasn't in favor of abortion, he supported Planned Parenthood for their help they provided to millions of women. Well, remember that he also said, after he made those Planned Parenthood comments, that abortion should be illegal and that women should be punished for yes. trying to, to yes. obtain them. So he's hit, he's certainly hit the far, far right extreme. I, I wouldn't call him moderate on abortion. I would just call him um, very inconsistent. Yeah. No, the saying that women should be punished, that was that was what's called a gaffe in politics, where somebody <laughs> says something that they believe which they weren't supposed to say. <laughs> right. Um, and, he, you know, he really upset the um, anti-choice community by saying that because it it kind of ruined this messaging project that they've been working on for about a, a little more than a decade now, which yeah. is to really to say that their their work is in the service of women and their their ultimate goal is to protect women. And so they, they would really rather not have the conversation about what would happen to women in the criminal justice system if abortion were to be illegal. Zoe Carpenter, reader at thenation.com. Zoe, thanks so much for talking with us today. It's always a pleasure. Thanks. Now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Garrison Keeler. Today we take up the vital question, how do you explain the differences between Minnesota and Wisconsin? Minnesota is a Democratic state in doing great. Wisconsin is controlled by Republicans and restricting voting rights. For comment, we turn to Ari Berman. He's a senior contributing writer for The Nation and author of the indispensable book, Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. Ari Berman, welcome. 
Hey, John, great to be with you and always fun to talk about this topic with a native Minnesotan. <laughs> well, let's start with the bad things happening in Wisconsin with voting. Wisconsin is a swing state this November. It's controlled by Republicans led by Governor Scott Walker. How bad are the voting restrictions in Wisconsin right now? It's a terrible situation in Wisconsin. Wisconsin, like Minnesota, had one of the best election systems in the country, had a consistently high voter turnout. It had innovative reforms like Election Day voter registration. And basically, uh, for many, many decades, both Republicans and Democrats committed to upholding uh, Wisconsin as a leader in voting rights. And really, uh, that all changed with Scott Walker and Republican control. They not only had a strict voter ID law, which could disenfranchise 300,000 registered voters, but they cut back on early voting. They made it harder to register to vote. They made it harder to cast absentee ballots. They dismantled the independent agency that oversees Wisconsin elections. I mean, all of these things were unthinkable just a few years ago. And in a short order, Scott Walker has really turned Wisconsin, unlike Minnesota, into a state that has much more of the kind of debates that we're seeing in places like Alabama and Mississippi today. Minnesota did take up some proposals to restrict voting. Tell us about that history. Well, it's really interesting what happened. So in 2010, uh, Minnesota elected uh, Mark Dayton, a Democrat as governor, but a Republican legislature. And the Republican legislature in Minnesota was as conservative as the Republican legislature in Wisconsin. And they passed a law requiring strict ID to vote. Dayton vetoed it, and then it became a ballot initiative in 2012. And the thought was that this ballot initiative was going to pass overwhelmingly. Initially, the voter ID initiative had 80% support. Uh, but interestingly, it was defeated on Election Day. 54% uh, of Minnesotans voted against it. And that was the first time a voter ID ballot initiative had ever been defeated at the ballot box. And it was a sign uh, that there maybe wasn't as much support for restricting voting rights as people in Minnesota and around the country thought. And on the other uh, elements of voting rights in Minnesota, I know Minnesota was one of the early states to introduce same-day registration. The first election in which there was same-day registration, Jesse Ventura was elected, and same-day registration was blamed for what was thought as irresponsible, ignorant uh, young guys who wanted a wrestler instead of a good member of the Democratic Farmer Labor Party as their governor. You, you remember that history? Well, my understanding was that both Minnesota and Wisconsin had Election Day registration since the 1970s. They both passed it uh, around the mid-1970s, so it well predated Jesse Ventura. The interesting thing about this is that Republicans are saying, well, Election Day registration is just going to benefit Democrats. That w that's why we can't expand voting rights. But Minnesota and Wisconsin are interesting test cases because Minnesota, under Election Day registration, has elected Democrats like Mark Dayton. They've elected Republicans like Tim Pawlenty. And they've elected independents like Jesse Ventura. And basically what we see is that people from all across the political spectrum are elected. The difference is that voter turnout in Minnesota is consistently high with Election Day registration, just like Wisconsin. These states in presidential elections average close to 80 percent voter turnout, which is really remarkable. So if every state in the country emulated states like Minnesota, we really wouldn't have that big of a problem with the Democratic process.
I want to look briefly at the effects of democratic control in Minnesota compared to what Wisconsin has gotten out of Republican control. Minnesota, after turning down voting restriction and keeping the Democrats in power, raised the minimum wage, raised taxes on the rich. These are the things that Scott Walker said would destroy the uh, economy if a state how is Minnesota doing having raised the minimum wage tax and tax the rich? Well, there, there are fascinating case studies of the difference between Republican and Democratic rule. Minnesota under Dayton and when Democrats controlled the legislature became a very progressive place. As you mentioned, they did all these things like raising the minimum wage, raising taxes on the wealthy, investing in education. And Scott Walker did the exact opposite. What we've seen is that Minnesota has fared much better. Minnesota has better job growth lower unemployment, uh, all the statistics when it comes to the economy and other issues favor Minnesota. So if you're looking for whether a Democratic governance or Republican governance, conservative governance or progressive government works, uh, Minnesota is a very clear example that Democratic progressive governance is much more effective than the, the corporate conservatism that has defined the Scott Walker era in, in Wisconsin. And the bottom line here, anyone in Minnesota will tell you is, Minnesota is a state with relatively high taxes, whereas Wisconsin is a low-tax state. Nevertheless, Minnesota has faster job growth, higher wages, and lower unemployment. Now comes the really big question. How do you explain the difference between Wisconsin and Minnesota in the last decade or two? Well, it's interesting. The states are so similar, as, as, they, as you know. One person said the difference was that one state had more Norwegians and one state had more Swedish until uh, recently. But I think basically what happened was in 2010, Wisconsin's ele Wisconsin elected Scott Walker in a Republican legislature. In 2010, Minnesota elected Mark Dayton, and then two years later elected uh, a Democratic legislature. And that really was the difference. And, and it's been very difficult uh, to get Scott Walker and Republicans out of office. What happened in, in Wisconsin was they have successfully gerrymandered all the legislative districts to make it very hard to lose. Uh, they have uh, spent a tremendous amount of money, the Koch brothers and other groups on the right, to keep Scott Walker in power. Once Republicans took power in Wisconsin, they did everything they could to try to keep power. So I don't think the states are really that different in terms of any long-term political shifts. I just think it's that, you know, one state elected one party for a brief moment, the other state elected another party for a brief moment, and that's made a very profound difference in terms of how the states are governed. Hasn't there also been a change in the Republicans in Wisconsin? Wisconsin used to be a liberal state with moderate Republicans, with the notable exception of Joe McCarthy, but am I wrong about that? <laughs> Betty, you're, you're totally right about that. I mean, the moderate Republicans in Wisconsin have been completely eliminated. The last moderate Republican in the legislature, Dale Schultz, retired in 2014, and it really is Scott Walker's Republican Party. It's a very, very conservative, ideological, corporate-funded Republican Party. That's very different than the Republicans that we know in Wisconsin for many, many years. Minnesota has had similar things happen, but there are still some moderates that are left there. Uh, and so I, I think the, the other thing is that the Democratic Party is stronger in Minnesota than Wisconsin. We have not seen Democrats uh, effectively challenge Scott Walker when they have. They've lost. In Minnesota, you have not only Mark Dayton as governor, but you have Al Franken, you have Amy Klobuchar, you have Democrats elected 
down ballot. You have a very strong secretary of state there. You have people like Keith Ellison in, in Congress. You don't have that, that same progressive tradition now in Wisconsin. I actually have a kind of an explanation for why that might be. Minnesota, unlike Wisconsin, has a really big urban center. The state is really dominated by Minneapolis and St. Paul, my hometown. Wisconsin has Milwaukee, but Milwaukee is 1.4 million people. Minneapolis-St. Paul has more than 2.5 million people. It's ranked number 16 in the United States. The Twin Cities are the economic, both the economic center of Minnesota, also the political center, and full of universities and colleges, which have been a big source of strength for the Democratic Farmer Labor Party, the DFL. I mean, Paul Wellstone uh, had been a college professor. The university people are connected to the to the DFL. Wisconsin does have a very liberal university, but it's been under attack by the state government lately. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. One thing that really struck me when I looked at Wisconsin was just how polarizing a place Milwaukee is in terms of the, the politics there, that Milwaukee is a city that uh, 70% of the African-American population lives in Milwaukee. It's a majority-minority city. And people like Scott Walker have really built their careers on demonizing Milwaukee. And indeed, many of the voting restrictions were passed, as one Republican legislature said, to crack down on, quote, neighborhoods around Milwaukee and on college students, meaning on college students and African-American and Latino voters who live in Milwaukee. And I don't think that's quite the case in Minnesota. I don't think the Twin Cities are quite as controversial in Minnesota politics. I'm sure you have Republicans who say, well, those John Wieners of the world at St. Paul, they're destroying our state. I'm sure you have some of that. Uh, But the level of demonization in Milwaukee really has defined Wisconsin politics in the Scott Walker era. You have a very democratic city surrounded by incredibly conservative suburbs, overwhelmingly white, incredibly conservative suburbs that really set the agenda for the state. The Twin Cities did have Michelle Bachman, who for one week was the leading Republican candidate in the primaries of 2012. She did not run, however, against the black people in the city. She was a, you know, a Christian fundamentalist Reagan budget kind of person. But I think we should give the conservative suburbs south of Minneapolis credit for Michelle Bachman. Oh, of course. But it's, it's, it's almost a situation where imagine Michelle Bachman running a state and then you have Wisconsin. <laughs> In 2012, Obama carried Wisconsin by, I think, seven points. He carried Minnesota, I think, by eight points. Basically, the same margin for Obama in both Minnesota and Wisconsin. Right now, Minnesota is considered pretty much a safe state for Hillary in November. Wisconsin is regarded as a swing state. What do you think will happen in Wisconsin this November? Will Trump carry Wisconsin? No, no, I don't think so. I think that people have had it in Wisconsin with Scott Walker and with the Republicans. They've, they're so gerrymandered Congress and the state legislature that they'll probably stay in power. But Russ Feingold is running very strong against Ron Johnson to take back his Senate seat. Uh, I think that although there are rumors that Trump will do well in Wisconsin with working-class whites 
Uh, I think that he ultimately will not win the state. I don't think it'll be very close. I think that between the college students, the African-American community, uh, moderate Republican women, I think that uh, Trump is going to have a hard time in in Wisconsin. So Wisconsin is still trending blue at the national level, but it's going to be more difficult for Democrats to retake state government there because of how gerrymandered it is and how polarized politics is there right now. Ari Berman, he wrote about the difference between Minnesota and Wisconsin on voting rights for the new issue of The Nation magazine. His piece is called A Tale of Two States. Ari, thanks for taking up this vital issue for all Americans, and thanks for talking with us today. Good to talk to you, John. Thanks. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Our recording engineer is Ernesto Orellano. Our engagement editor is Annie Shields. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs>